Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Faith in UU. My name is Reverend McKinley Sims. I serve as the minister at the UU Church of the Restoration here in beautiful Philadelphia in the Mount Airy neighborhood. And the big news here is that I was just called to be the settled minister of Restoration, which in the UU world is kind of a big deal. It means that I'll be sticking around here for as long as the congregation and I deem it appropriate. Very, very excited, very, very honored, very, very glad to be here, and glad to be able to continue getting to do this on my days off, providing a little more spiritual outlet for me, and hopefully a little bit of spiritual guidance, direction, and just a little bit of comedy for you listeners. Thank you for tuning in. I'm sorry it's been so long since our last episode, but the theme of our month here at Restoration is resilience. Resilience. And we preached on mental health this past Sunday, something I don't think we in the church talk about very much. And when we do, it's often with negative connotations, and it's often in a taboo situation. It's a great fear that we have, something we don't want to talk about, along with how much money we make, along with sexuality and identity. It's a little bit of a third rail. There are plenty of stories from the Christian tradition that have to deal with mental illness. And they're often looked at in a derogatory way, stories that make us uncomfortable, people that make us uncomfortable, situations and realities that make us uncomfortable. So my hope is that we might talk a little bit about that today and offer up some ways that we might be resilient in the face of behavioral health crises, build resilience as individuals and as communities, and how the church can be a resource for those who are in mental distress, whether they are members of your congregation or not. So we started with a story from the Buddhist tradition about a woman who has lost a family member, in this case her husband. She's devastated. She's been with her husband for years, and she doesn't know how she can go on, and she starts to get a little frantic and starts going from house to house in her village begging people to help her. Can anyone help me? My husband has died. Can anyone help me? And of course, no one can, but they offer that she go to see the Buddha. And so she does. She goes on a trek. She climbs the mountain. She goes through the woods. She reaches the summit where the Buddha is meditating. She goes to him and says, Buddha, can you help me? My husband has died. And the Buddha says, oh yeah, I can help you. She says, really? He says, yes. I just need you to bring me four mustard seeds from a household where there has not been a death. And she hears this voice like a mantra in her head, four mustard seeds, four mustard seeds. She says, thank you, Buddha. And she goes back down. She goes to the first house in her village. She knocks on the door. The man answers and she says, excuse me, I need need four mustard seeds from a house that has not experienced any death. Has anyone died here? And the man says, yes, actually, my my son died very suddenly as a young boy. It was awful. I'm still grieving his loss, even though it's been years. Uh, So I'm sorry we can't help you. She says, oh, my goodness, that's so sad. I'm I'm so sorry that happened. Okay, well, I, I, I need to be going. Thinking to herself, four mustard seeds, four mustard seeds, four mustard seeds. So she goes to the next house in the village. She knocks on the door, and a woman answers. 
the woman with the dead husband says, I, I'm sorry to bother you. I, I need help. Uh, I'm looking for four mustard seeds. Has, has anyone died here? And the woman says, uh, yes, actually, my sister died uh, very recently. We'd been twin sisters growing up, but we'd never been apart. And I'm still learning how to grieve without her, how to live without her. I'm sorry, I can't help you. The woman with the dead husband says, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. That's that's terrible. Well, I need to go. She thinks, four mustard seeds, four mustard seeds. But now she hears the voices of the others who have lost in her village. She goes to the next house. It's the same. The next house is the same. And apart from the mantra of the four mustard seeds, she starts to realize that there is no house in her village or in the village next to her village or in the village after that that has not been touched by death, has not been touched by suffering, that has not been affected in some way by mortality. She starts to understand what the Buddha was trying to teach her. One of the noble truths of Buddhism is that life is suffering. Life is full of suffering. Suffering is part and parcel of life. Death comes to everyone. And then once she's accepted the fact that suffering is inevitable, she starts to learn how to move through her grief. And now she has a community to support her because others know what it is to grieve and to lose as well. I tell this story as an example of what we in Unitarian Universalism refer to as our seventh principle, the interdependent and interconnected web of all existence. The interdependent web of all existence of which we are all a part. I love that idea. And what I tell folks is that that is not some theological, fancy-footed argument about spirituality or kind of pie-in-the-sky idealism that we're all together, connected, singing kumbaya. That it's a real truth. It's a statement about the reality of the universe, the reality of our nature, that we all are actually interconnected, interdependent not just emotionally and spiritually, but physically, that we make relationships and friendships that are sometimes physical, intimate relationships, but also that our bodies exert gravitational pull on one another. Just like celestial bodies, stars and comets, that our bodies actually interact on a subatomic level in that way, that we are always interacting and affecting one another. We are interconnected and thus interdependent. And this deep truth was made clear to me again over this past weekend when I had an opportunity to go on a retreat to take some silent time in the woods. I got to walk around on a forest path covered in crunchy leaves and snapping sticks. Caught sight of a white-tailed deer bucking through the forest. And as I was walking and thinking and meditating and praying as I walked, hoping for a little guidance, asking for a little light and love, I came upon a tree that was tall and round, covered in bark. And curling up around the tree was some kind of woody vine. I'm not a botanist, so I don't know what it was called. But I noticed the smaller 
trees, the saplings, had the same vine around them as well. And at first I thought it was some kind of weed, maybe an invasive species that was trying to choke the trees. That's what I thought it looked like for the saplings. But then here was this elder tree, this majestic tree, a tree that had been around the block a few times, growing up, out, tall, reaching towards the heavens, and around its trunk also reaching tall, straight up towards the heavens, was a spiraling vine. Clearly, some kind of symbiotic relationship was going on, that the vine grew onto the tree and was able to grow up towards the sunlight, receive more nutrients. And I was reminded of this interconnected and interdependent web of all existence. That these two living things grew together, not choking or feeding off of one or the other, but living with, connected to, and thriving because of that connection and that interdependence. Think about the story of the woman looking for help with her lost husband who finds this community to help her grieve and to help her grow towards something more. What does it mean to be connected? To be interdependent. And what does that have to do with mental health? My tradition says whenever two or three are gathered together, there the spirit is also. But that you can be in the same physical space as someone and be potentially affecting someone on a gravitational subatomic level. But your mind isn't really present. Your spirit isn't really present. You can be together but not be connected. But there's something about shared experiences. Like the woman going around house to house and sharing her story of her suffering and hearing the stories of others, hearing those voices competing with the mantra of the four mustard seeds in her head that helps to guide her towards something more. There's something about shared experiences that create connection. Sometimes those experiences are positive and joyful. When I share my story of walking in the woods, and maybe that resonates with you, you think of a time when you have been in nature and felt connected to something greater, felt loved towards wholeness. Sometimes it's not pleasant. Sometimes it's about deep suffering. It's about the grief of losing someone we love. It's about grief for the state of our nation. It's about grief for the future of our planet. It might be grief over the passing of a famous basketball player whom we don't know personally, but yet we feel deep sadness, frustration, and loss for someone that we didn't even know personally. Someone we didn't know well, we might not know well at all. We might just know the name and the circumstances of someone like Kobe Bryant's passing. These shared experiences create connection. I'm reminded of after the 2016 election, when everything seemed to be falling apart and it felt like all hope was lost and this dark and gloom had descended mm -hmm. over our nation. I remember having the opportunity to go to a small concert featuring classical music that was held in a friend's house in Washington, D.C. I remember packing into this row home in D.C., listening to Bach or Beethoven or something, and feeling so much love and connection to everyone else in the room. 
that despite the horrible anxiety within me and within our country, wondering what was coming down the way, finding a moment or two, an hour or two, to be with these people and to experience this beautiful music together, sitting on the floor, sitting on cushions, knee to knee, elbow to elbow. It was incredibly holy and incredibly magical. And despite the suffering, our shared experience and the choosing to be interconnected to the music, to one another, and to our own emotional space, our own grief, and our collective grief in that time, it started something. It's like a voice in my head that I listen to when things get hard that leads me towards something more, that leads me towards something greater, more whole, more loving. I think about this Buddhist woman going from house to house, developing community, learning how to grieve, being connected, hearing people share their stories, people saying, ah, yes, I know that pain too. The sharing of the woundedness from the Christian tradition. Jesus shows the disciples his scars. So Jesus, the person imbued with the Christ power, who is a well-known healer, brings people back from the dead, said to have risen from the dead himself, the body still bears scars that he shows the disciples, has them touch and see, saying, ah, yeah, I know that pain too, that suffering, that pain, that death, it's part of the deal. It is a part of life. In some ways it's a necessity of life, that you cannot have one without the other, and if you do, then it's not a full life, or not a fully human life. That listening to the voices that tell us to avoid engaging with that pain, seeking a quick fix, a quick cure, a magical solution, to take away the pain, seeking four mustard seeds from a house that has not experienced death, is a way to evade having to live a fully human life. So I'm not saying that the pain is good, or that it happens for a reason, I don't talk about that. It sucks. That's the truth. The state of our country sucks. It's awful. It's heartbreaking. But it is part of our fully human life, and we cannot run away from that. It's what St. Bonaventure referred to as the coincidence of opposites, or the coincidence of opposites. That life is full of both great meaning and great mystery full of great joy and great pain. Example, he gives his childbirth. That there is great joy and great pain, life and potentially death present in one moment, and that learning how to hold these opposites together is the function of humanity and is the function of religious life, giving us tools to help us make meaning of these coincidence of opposites. And that somehow when you share the suffering that you're undergoing with others. When you share the pleasure that you're undergoing with others, when you share your stories, when you show people your scars, when you engage in interconnectedness of music in a row home in D.C., your insides change. That it affects you physically. That this turmoil or joy or peace that's on the inside, it, it finds a way to come out and be shared. 
Why am I feeling this grief? Why am I feeling this suffering? Because a basketball player was killed in a helicopter crash, why am I so affected? Is it about my own mortality? Am I worrying about death? Am I worrying about not living a fully human life? Wrestling with that stuff, plumbing the inner depths of our souls, it's what Robert Johnson refers to as doing your shadow work. Plumbing the depths of your insides, the stuff that you don't normally want to think about, sometimes the things that you can't think about unless someone else brings it out for you or some other event brings it out for you. The stuff that is in your shadow is the stuff that you cannot or will not see on your own. But when the Buddhist woman comes knocking at your door to share that she has lost her husband, it brings it up in you and you say, ah, yes, I know that pain too. Let me show you my scars, and maybe we will find a way to deal with this together. That's a mentality of ministry that we call the wounded healer model. Henry Nouwen is a writer who popularized this, and he was writing from a time when nuclear weapons had first come onto the scene. And what did it mean to do ministry and to love others in a nuclear age, when it seemed like the world might end in a nuclear Armageddon at any point? Sounds frighteningly familiar, does it not? But Nowen wrote that in this age, the call of the minister was not to be the good shepherd always, was not to be the teacher and the leader and the strong figure. The call of the minister was to be a wounded healer, to follow the example of Jesus showing the scars, to say, yes, I know that pain. Let me tell you about it, and maybe we can figure out a way together to work through it, to move through it, to live in that tension of great joy at being alive and great suffering that comes along with death, that is all wrapped up together. So what does that have to do with mental health? I ask again. Well, in my experience working at St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital in Washington, D.C., you see the joy and the suffering the love and the pain, the hope and the despair all wrapped up in one. Just like you see your mental health and your physical health all wrapped up in one, your behavioral health and your spiritual health all wrapped up, that we are interconnected and interdependent webs of all existence unto ourselves. I think part of the discomfort in talking about mental health is that we see it as something separate we have seen it as something separate that affects other people, crazy people. And we're not always aware of how close we are to being those people. That we are all one mental break away from being patients at St. Elizabeth's. We are all a traumatic experience away from having mental health struggles. That our mental health and our behavioral health is fragile, as is our physical health. We could be a 41-year-old former superstar basketball player, one of the most famous people in the world, and be killed in a helicopter crash. The life is fragile, and so are we. And that fragility of health and wellness, both in our body, in our lives, and in our mental health, is a voice that I have learned to listen to, something I have learned to talk about with others. And not to take for granted my mental health and to start to treat my brain like an, any other organ in my body. So I 
try to work out. I go to yoga now. That's a new thing. I try to swim. I try to run. I play sports. I like staying in shape because I know that staying in physical shape helps my mental health. I recognize that they're connected. But I don't always take the time to think of my mental health and my brain as an organ in my body. Something that I can take care of just like I take care of my kidneys, like I take care of my lungs by not smoking, all these things. To recognize the importance of it and recognize the interconnectedness of our brains and our bodies, our spirits and our emotions. One of the things you learn at St. E's is that group therapy is one of the most important forms of therapy to help patients find some kind of recovery. We talk about recovery because unfortunately there's no magic cure. There's no quick fix. There's no bag of four mustard seeds that you can get to make everything better. But the process, the connection of something like group therapy, it's like the Buddhist woman going from house to house, building a community to share in the struggle, to share in the grief, to share in the joy. And group therapy is one of the most proven pieces of data that shows behavioral change and an improving behavioral health for folks who are able to commit to it. That it points us towards something greater, towards something more loving, something that we call recovery. On Sunday, we spoke about mirror neurons, the neurons that fire when you're watching someone else perform an activity, that your brain has a little plasticity to it and helps to make you more engaged in that activity, that you see yourself in the actions of the other, and you recognize that, oh, yes, I know that. I know that movement. I know that song on a deeper level. Maybe I know that joy. Maybe I know that pain. That being in community like that, that having a group to help move through whatever you're moving through, to help you see yourself in the other, to help recognize what's in your shadow, to help bring that out so that it can be talked about, that it can be wrestled with. Listening to those voices points us towards recovery, what we might say here, towards restoration. That restoration through interdependent connection, through interconnected community, restoration towards love that doesn't deny suffering, but learns to embrace it as part of life, as part of a fully human life. as an incredibly important lesson. And that having a community like that helps to build resilience amongst the individuals and amongst the group itself. And I believe that that is a function of church. It's to give resources to folks and to communities to build resilience for when life is tough, for times like after the 2016 election, for times like maybe after the 2020 election. Let's be honest, we will need resilience come what may this year. The ability to bounce back when life gets you down, the ability to hold the tension of suffering and joy, the ability to live into the coincidence of opposites and to live a fully human life even when we don't want to, even when we'd be better just to complain or to deny the pain, to not think about it, to not talk about it. That doesn't build resilience. It builds isolation, it builds trauma, and it builds the fragility of our mental health. It makes it easier for us to be one break away from a more serious situation. That we are built to be social beings. We are built to be in community, 
even when it's uncomfortable. That's how we help process grief. That's how we help express our joy. We let the mirror neurons fire when we see others, when we talk with others, when the resilience is built from the outside that leads towards wholeness on the inside. So how do we do that? Well, I think one way to do it is to learn to get out of our heads because, as you learn when you work in a mental health facility, your head and your mind and your brain may not always be on your side. They may not always have your best interests at heart. I often have pastoral care talks where folks are so in their head trying to be rational above all else and trying to overanalyze, trying to wordsmith and wordpick minutia about interpersonal problems or problems about the geopolitical situation. And they're so in their head, so in a logical part of their brain that they're missing what's going on in their shadow. They're missing what's causing the suffering, what's causing the grief. And you can get on this carousel where they just go around and around, and I go around. I do it too. I go round and round using my words and trying to figure out, well, maybe that's not the word I mean. Maybe it's this. We get on a carousel where the only way to get off is for someone to say, tell me your pain. Tell me what you're feeling. Don't tell me what you are thinking. Tell me what you are feeling. What is going on in your body? What has been incarnated in you that is causing this? Show me your wounds. Show me your scars. And you know what? I will show you mine and say, oh yeah, I know that pain too. I've been there. When we come to church as Unitarian Universalists, as whatever denomination or theological viewpoint we have, I was taught to think about trying to be perfect, trying to be seen as perfect, not wanting to bring my, my inside stuff, my wounds to the door, my imperfections, trying to put on performance for others. But when we talk about being radically welcoming, honoring the inherent worth and dignity of every human being, telling people that we are all interconnected and interdependent in one web of existence. If that's true, you got to bring all of you to this building, to this table. Don't just bring the good stuff, right? We're a coincidence of opposites. Bring the suffering. Bring the hurt. Bring the vulnerability. And I hear you say, Reverend McKinley, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be vulnerable. I'd rather stay in my head where it's nice and comfy. Give me facts. Give me figures. Give me data. Give me rational arguments. Don't give me that fully human reality crap. That's too scary. And I hear you. It is. Having to get into your body and out of your head is scary. Feeling fragile is scary. Feeling incomplete and imperfect is scary. It's uncomfortable. Feeling like your life isn't as secure as you want is scary. Feeling like life could be snatched away from you, like in a helicopter crash at any moment, is scary. Feeling like you're one traumatic event away from having a mental health crisis is scary. Feeling fully human is awful. And it's wonderful. Go find me some mustard seeds. Go hear the stories. Go see the scars. It's awful. And it's wonderful. 
the reality of suffering and the hope of restoration, of recovery. Awful and wonderful at the same time. Coincidence of opposites. Because awe and wonder, of course, in the old language, are two sides of the same coin. Awe and wonder mean fundamentally the same thing. Awe is just kind of scary, and wonder is kind of happy. So when I hear people say that they don't want to get out of their rational head, they don't want to wrestle with their feelings, with their suffering, with their joy, I say, it's your choice, right? I can't make you want to feel fully human. There's got to be some want to, but... I firmly believe that not talking about the stuff that's in our shadows, not talking about the stuff that we see in the shadows of others, is avoiding being fully human, is avoiding living fully human. And if you can't talk about that stuff at church, if you can't talk about mental health, if you can't talk about stress and anxiety, the uncomfortable stuff with a community that loves you and cares for you and is interconnected to you, where can you talk about it? Because a lot of times when people don't want to bring up the hard stuff, don't want to bring up the darker parts of our history, either as a congregation, as an institution, or as individuals, a lot of times it's a way of avoiding talking about God, the full reality of a God who's not just a lovey-dovey pie in the sky, everyone get together and sing kubaya to an old white man with a beard. It's avoiding talking about a God that seems to allow suffering, that seems to allow behavioral health crises, seems to allow psychosis, seems to allow helicopter crashes and the death of loved ones due to cancer. It's a way of avoiding talking about our own fragility, the fragileness of our mental health, the fragileness of our physical health. A lot of times it's a way of avoiding the hard stuff in hopes of being a fast food religion, a religion that gives you what you want, what you think you want, when you want it, as quick as you want it. And makes you feel good for about an hour. And then it's not so fulfilling. It's not so nourishing or wholesome. It does not lead you to something more, to something greater, towards recovery or restoration. It's functionally the same thing as Joel Osteen's prosperity gospel. If I think really, really good thoughts and pray really hard, God's going to give me a lot of money. It's your choice. We don't have any creedal test here in Unitarian Universalism. You're free to believe that. But if to live a fully human life is the goal, then I think that involves having a fully human range of all the emotions, of the shadow stuff and the stuff that's light. The wholeness and the brokenness, the joy and the suffering, the life and the death. Because I'll tell you this about working with folks with mental health issues. Even folks whose brains are broken, whose brains are no longer on their side, we're listening to voices that are not always leading them towards wholeness and restoration. They can still feel. They can still name what's going on in their bodies. They can still talk about their joy and their suffering and connect with others on it. So no, it's not all kumbaya, pie in the sky, lovey-dovey all the time. We're not listening to that voice. Nor do we want to be all negative all the time. We want to say, woe is me, and we're just going to get together and kvetch and complain. We're not having Festivus every week. We're not listening to that voice either. We are listening to the voice that tells us that you won't find four mustard seeds at any of those houses. Listening to the voice that says, 
here are my scars. Listening to the voice that talks about suffering and resurrection, restoration, recovery, as all being connected. The interconnected and interdependent web of all existence. From the Jewish tradition, we're all probably familiar with Psalm 23 that starts out, The Lord is my shepherd. You may not be familiar with Psalm 22, the psalm that comes right before that poem that starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What an incredible stroke of inspiration that the authors would place those poems back to back to cover the full range of humanity, the fully human range of emotional expression, to denote that suffering and joy are interconnected. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's all connected, y'all. It's the vine and the tree, connected, growing up, out, reaching towards the heavens. It operates on the premise that when we try to be isolated, try to remain in one mode, try to be rational, try to be by ourselves, it's when we get stuck. It operates on the premise that our brains crave connection and relationship, that our bodies interact with one another in physical, emotional, spiritual, and even subatomic ways. It operates on the premise that trauma and isolation lead to increases in breaks in our behavioral health, in our mental health, and that learning to heal those breaks is a function of group therapy, is a function of building community that helps us to grieve and process and pray and listen and share and move towards something greater. That just as our bodies and our minds are interconnected and interdependent, our bodies are interconnected and interdependent with one another, that it's about moving away from brokenness and isolation and anxiety and fragility towards something more, towards wholeness, towards recovery, towards restoration for ourselves and our world. And if we can't do that on a small scale, in our families, in our congregations, what hope do we have to do it in the wider world? This is the question I always bring up when people say, I don't want to do that. That's uncomfortable. I don't want to be vulnerable. Why do we have to do that? Can't we just be fed the fast food religion, please? I say, yeah, we could. I could try to give you a quick fix, tell you to go find me four mustard seeds. But I think we know now there is no quick fix. There is no magic pill. There is only sustained relationship mending and healing again and again, showing and seeing each other's pain again and again finding what is in our shadows and in the shadows of others again and again until we build resilience. We learn to heal and build together. We learn to cope and bounce back until we are all changed or transformed by the experience. Or we don't. And that's what freedom of religion is. The choice is ours. But as Henry Nouwen wrote, when we engage in this kind of vulnerability and risk-taking, in showing our emotional expression and in sharing what is in our shadows. He writes, nobody can predict where this will lead us, but it is exactly in common searches and shared risks that new ideas are born, that new visions reveal themselves, and that new roads become visible. That, my friends, is what we need now more than ever. New visions, 
new roads, new love, new ways of finding resilience and restoration. May we walk, skip, jump, move together on those roads from village to village, knocking at the doors, asking folks to tell us their pain so that we might share our own scars, build resilience together, and listen to the voices that call us towards something more, towards something greater, that grow and stretch and reach toward the heavens, so that we might build a little bit of what's up there, down here. May it be so. Amen. To hear more from Reverend McKinley, you can find us on YouTube by YouTube searching UU Restoration Philadelphia. Follow McKinley on Twitter at McKinley L. Sims. That's at McKinley L. Sims on Twitter. Or send him an email by going to the UU Restoration website, uurestoration.us.